everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, so we've already had two podcasts. Where in podcast number one with Coleman Hughes, I had a discussion on affirmative action and reparations in the United States of America, and uh, Coleman had a very distinct view. He was opposed. He was opposed to idea of uh, repar. Uh, affirmative action or quotas in higher educational institutions and Coleman shared his views then. In the second podcast I had with my dear friend Razib Khan and we were looking at affirmative action from a very brown person perspective in, in the United States of America. Uh, uh, and, and then I wanted someone who would come and give up, you know, a pro affirmative action uh, point of view. And I reached out to Matt. Uh, Matt Matt is no first timer on this podcast. He's been here multiple times. And you know, to Matt's credit, he immediately said yes. And uh, Matt, welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be back. Uh, it's always nice talking to you. So let let's start, Matt. So what do you make of this current Supreme Court judgment? Uh, what are your initial reactions? And then we can get into the specifics. Well, my initial reaction uh, is to be disappointed, but not surprised. Uh, you know what I mean? You're kind of like the parent uh, who has a kid who's a bit rotten and gets into trouble constantly. Uh, so when you find out that they're being suspended from school for the umpteenth time, you know, it's kind of like, but what can you do about it? Right. Uh, because the trajectory of the jurisprudence for the last couple of decades uh, has generally been away from the expansive conception of affirmative action as it was initially conceived in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, towards one that was much more narrowly tailored uh, and much more constraining. Uh, and now it seems like the very conservative court that's been in office now, I guess, for about three years, uh, is just taking away the last fig leaf uh, and saying, we're not going to do that uh, any longer. Uh, and for myself and for a number of other people, that's deeply disappointing. Uh, but again, shouldn't come as any kind of surprise. But uh, what was very interesting uh, when I started researching on this subject and even Coleman told me the same thing on the podcast was America did have quotas in the beginning. Mm -hmm. They got rid of the quotas and then they had this uh, weird sort of system that they call affirmative action. And they still have affirmative action in lower education like primary school, secondary school or high school, whatever you guys call over here. It's only in the elite institutions that the Supreme Court has made this judgment on. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, it really depends uh, upon how expansively this is interpreted, right? Uh, now, technically speaking, uh, these judgments do just apply to a specific set of uh, elite institutions, post-secondary institutions in the United States. Uh, but the signal that the court is giving uh, that this is no longer within the bounds uh, of legal normality is probably going to be taken uh, by many policymakers at every level of government uh, as a kind of green light to erode uh, the affirmative action programs that might be existed at the municipal level, at the state level, you name it, right? Uh, although I should say that I'm not really surprised uh, that so much attention has been paid to these post-secondary elite institutions. Um, there are a lot of different reasons for this. We can get into it in a little bit more detail. But generally speaking, schools like the Ivy League, for example, uh, and the lesser Ivies per se, uh, are seen as the kind of breeding grounds or training grounds for America's upper crust. And it's very important for these institutions to maintain at least the allure uh, that there's something meritocratic uh, about them. Uh, and because they occupy such a just a immense uh, place uh, in America's cultural imaginary, the debates around them are also very, very, very fierce in a way that you wouldn't see debates around affirmative action at, say, the community college level. So... Let's let's start with the concept of meritocracy itself. Now, uh, David, uh, what was David Merkowitz who wrote that book on meritocracy? Uh, uh, I, I'm very bad with names, so I apologize. But I think I'm getting this name right. It was a famous book and it is the most cited book these days when it comes to the concept of meritocracy itself, where he has criticized meritocracy and he says meritocracy creates what he calls a caste system. If I remember his, pa I'm paraphrasing his views. I'm not uh, giving the exact quotes over here, but he says it creates a caste system. Now, you've written a lot on the idea of meritocracy personally. Now, uh, now I'm not saying uh, you do believe in the power of markets because you've, you've explained that multiple times in your book as well as on my podcast and your other appearances. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about meritocracy. So where do you have a fundamental problem with this idea of meritocracy as it is understood in the West? Well, my problem with the idea of meritocracy uh, is it's just an extremely abstract and untrue idea, right? 
uh, even if I was not normatively opposed to it, the fact that we can't have a meritocracy is a good reason to stop aspiring to have a meritocracy. And the reasons I hold to these perspectives are largely uh, for various different Rawlsian uh, theoretical commitments, right? And we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before. Uh, and there are also social dimensions to this that I'll get into in a few seconds, right? But broadly speaking, uh, Rawls asks us to consider whether or not you could ever have something like a meritocracy, not even whether it's normatively desirable, just whether or not something could exist that conforms to what people deserve, broadly speaking. And he says, listen, you know, uh, from a impartial perspective, uh, the distribution of natural talents or disadvantages is purely the result of a genetic lottery. Uh, and to the extent that it's not the consequence of genetic lottery, that means certain people are unfairly advantaged or disadvantaged because they grow up in a household where their parents impart to them superior kind of genetic attributes uh, or disadvantages because you know that's just the kind of way that society has been set up, right? So we can't really allocate all that much weight uh, to the distribution of natural talents and say that people merit uh, whatever accrues from them. Uh, and then he says, many people are advantaged or disadvantaged because of formative influences when they're growing up. And we are all very familiar with this, right? Uh, so in the United States, some students, for example, uh, receive almost twice as much money poured into their primary education uh, as other students, usually bracketing around racial grounds, right? Uh, and that's to say nothing about people who go to private schools, right, who are entirely in a league of their own. Uh, and that really makes a difference, right? Uh, whether you are a poor student growing up in a tough elementary school uh, in Detroit, for example, uh, where in some circumstances you might not even have running water, uh, or you're going to a private school uh, where, you know, there are 10 students to a class, uh, you get all the kind of technological advantages that you could possibly want. Uh, and when you're reading Julius Caesar, they take you on a field trip to Italy, right? Uh, and this continues down through the post-secondary system uh, where we have vast amounts of empirical data that suggests that the people who get into those Ivy League schools that so much uh, debate searches around uh, overwhelmingly come uh, from the upper quartile uh, of American income stratas. Uh, in fact, there was a 2013 set, uh, study that suggested that actually between 75 to 85% of people who go to Ivy League schools or the top 10 schools uh, all come from the top quarter uh, of American income brackets. Only about 5% or even lower come from the lower income brackets, right? That's pretty spectacular. Uh, and then Rawls would also say that beyond just the fact that the distribution of natural talents is a result of an arbitrary genetic lottery, people have advantages or disadvantages that are also purely arbitrary during formative periods. Uh, whether or not you're able to exercise the natural talents that you develop or are enabled to develop because of social circumstances really depends a great deal on fortune uh, because you have to live in a society that values the exercise of the natural talents that you have and that you've developed, right? Uh, and there's you know, all kinds of examples of this, right? Uh, say I was a really good hockey player. You know, it's important to me as Canadian. I want to be, uh, I'm actually shit. But let's just say I was a really good hockey player. But instead of being born in Canada, I was born in Nigeria, right? Uh, now, it's very unlikely that I'll be able to do anything financially uh, viable with that skill set in Nigeria the way that I could if I grew up in, say, Sudbury, uh, Canada, right? Uh, because the society that I'm born to does not reward that set of natural talents, right? Uh, and so you have to be fortunate enough uh, that you live in a context where whatever it is that you're capable of doing, uh, somebody will be willing to pay you to do that. And Rawls's point is once you take that all together, uh, this idea that some people merit more than others seems an awful lot like the idea that, you know, Santa Claus will reward good children uh, or these old mystical ideas that we can have a uh, metaphysical universe that rewards the good and punishes the bad all these kind of older speculative ideas. Uh, and I really think that there's something to this, right? Um, I think it's a utopian idea to believe that we could ever have something like a meritocracy. I think it's really telling that the most important philosophers of the 20th century, including uh, defenders of capitalism like Nozick, like Hayek said, it's a mirage, never gonna happen, time to wean ourselves off of it. Uh, because what this idea of meritocracy really embodies is this mystical yearning for an orderly universe where people get what they deserve. And I hate to break it to you and your listeners, but that's a utopian idea. It's never going to happen. Uh, the world is always going to consist of people, some people not getting what they deserve uh, and other people getting way more than they deserve. And we just have to learn to live with this and consequently abandon the idea of meritocracy. But to, to flip this around, now I'm very sympathetic to the Rawlsian idea. You know it personally. We've spoken about it multiple times, but I have to do justice to this. Uh, meritocracy might be a utopia, but then equality of outcomes is also an equal utopia that is imagined by the people on the left. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot have equality of outcomes. 
in that sense, don't you think the conservatives have a better argument that they say we have to create situations where we make equality of opportunity, but we cannot ensure equality of outcomes because if meritocracy is a utopia, mm -hmm. equality of outcomes is an equal utopian idea. Oh, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, right? I don't think we should be aspiring for strict equality in every sense. Not only do I think we couldn't, uh, not only do I think we can never actually achieve that, uh, I think the process of trying to do so would be extraordinarily disruptive, right? Uh, so there are good Rawlsian arguments for this. Some of them are really technical, but I'll give you the gist of it, right? Uh, first off, I would argue that if you're really committed to, say, equality of opportunity, you have to take seriously a lot of those disadvantages uh, that people face uh, over the course of their existence. Because otherwise, what you're essentially saying is, well, fair, like equality of opportunity just means that everyone can apply for the same job. Uh, but in the race or the competition for the job, some people start 300 yards ahead, other people start, you know, 600 yards behind. And we also put weights in their shoes uh, and, you know, give them acid. Uh, so they have no idea where it is that they're going. Just from this Friday, I'm going to be a little bit funny about this, right? Uh, so that's not equality of opportunity, right? Uh, and in many cases, all the people on the left are arguing for and actually I'd be quite critical of some of them for this, is arguing that fair equality of opportunity, we need that people needs to start at the same starting line with relatively equal advantages. Otherwise, what are we really talking about in this respect, right? Uh, but in my own kind of political philosophy, I'm very sympathetic to this Rawlsian idea that inequalities in any given society uh, are inevitable, uh, and also to a certain extent to be celebrated to the extent that people develop their natural talents as part and parcel of their pursuing a good life. However, right? Uh, any inequalities that are present in society and any propensity to develop your natural talents have to be demonstrably to the benefit of the least well off. Uh, and the least well off need to be prioritized in our social arrangements. And that's where I think our society has been deeply deficient uh, for a very long time, in no small part because of the influence uh, of these meritocratic mythologies uh, that persuade us that the people who are least well off in our society, for some mysterious or religious reason, must deserve it. Uh, otherwise, there's a big problem with their system and we'd have to reform it uh, in pretty dramatic ways. So this is where I guess we can start introducing the concept of what is popularly known as inherited advantage, right? And mm -hmm. which is something that is uh, uh, something that is discussed all the time in in, um, in in North America. Now it's very interesting that inherited advantage as a rule, as a foundation was easily accepted in India when we were having our constituent assembly debates. And that's why we had not just affirmative action, we had reservations, aka quotas, and we just enshrined it in our constitution. Now, obviously, there was a caveat that these quotas are enshrined because of, and, and we, the Indian, a lot of people think, you know, uh, I, I, I hate to use this word, vocism. No, no, no. India <laughs> was Rawlsian. India always believed in Rawlsian positive discrimination and India, when it formulated its founding fathers and people have this image that, you know, these things will change when the BJP is in power. People, little do people know the BJP will double down on the quotas. They will not reduce them because in India, the entire spectrum is left on this. They are all Rawlsian on this. Nobody, including the BJP, disagrees on the idea of positive discrimination. So they will always keep it. Now, it's very interesting that it stems from the assumption is what? There is an inherited advantage in India. It is based on uh, the idea of Jati Varna or caste. Mm -hmm. Or in the West, it is based on the idea of race. Now, now ex first explain what inherited advantage conceptually means. What are its real life implications and why you think inherited advantage is in itself a very valid argument for maintaining affirmative action. Yeah, well, I just want to say, first off, I think uh, India is in many cases well ahead uh, of the West in terms of trying to demonstrate concern for the least well off, particularly uh, children who are least well off. Uh, so, for instance, I was doing some research recently on India's really groundbreaking uh, food subsidies program for schools, right? And the fact that they provision a school lunch. It's quite remarkable that in the United States, there's a robust debate going on right now over whether schools should allocate uh, students a free lunch. And this is just something that India essentially declared a right to for a long time. Uh, we call also, it a midday meal scheme. Midday exactly. Meal scheme. Uh, also advanced by uh, the Marxist Party, I should say, Kerala, right? Just a little uh, twinge there for uh, my Marxists. Uh, but, you know, it's that's a remarkable achievement, right? Uh, now, obviously, the problem is imperfect, but it's really demonstrative of the kind of efforts that I like to see implemented on a broad scale um, in the Western world, uh, if you want to call it, or certainly in the United States. But in terms of inherited advantage, look, I'm less concerned with inherited advantage than I am with inherited disadvantage, right? I'll uh, just have to correct you over here. Kerala did not introduce the midday meal scheme. Tamil Nadu 
ఎంపాక్టింగ్ not necessarily how do we bring people down right because bringing people down uh to a baser level uh really smacks of resentment right this idea that you know market thatcher used to criticize uh that you know it's better for us all to be equal even if we're going to be more equally poor right that's not what i want uh what i do think that we could be doing uh is trying to ameliorate the really impactful uh resonance of disadvantages that people inherit uh through no fault of their own uh and i think that this is especially important when we look at children uh and the various disadvantages that they might accrue as a result of not being born into affluent families as a result of being born into certain neighborhoods or as a result of being born into racialized or gendered communities uh and again there's just a wealth uh, of evidence uh, on these points some of which i've mentioned before right uh but the fact that you'd have almost twice as much money uh allocated to you as a student in a primary school in an affluent county uh is just deeply wrong uh from my standpoint uh and the solution to that isn't to say well let's make the quality schools uh in affluent counties worse uh is to say okay well let's allocate more money uh to the schools that right now are disadvantaged so that every kind of student uh can get a premier education which will also have uh the impact of living up uh to this model a fair quality of opportunity that i think is so important now the argument uh, on inherited advantage then somebody would flip around and say then why just in the university system for example mm-hmm. what if you have an inherited advantage in the arena of sports some people <laughs> yeah. do have inherited advantage in the arena of sports for example uh, let's say if you are short in stature or in or of a certain lean build you could probably play table tennis or as it's called ping pong in, in, in america do you, you know there is a certain physique required for ping pong or for oh, badminton yeah. or for basketball for that matter you have to be tall uh, for basketball so isn't that also an inherited advantage i think so absolutely uh, and i think that there are ways that we can address this problem which i agree uh, is a central problem so one of the things that rawls would talk about uh, is that we need to approach this in two different ways right one is the first the first one and the most important one is to recognize that any effort that we undertake uh to try to ameliorate the condition of the least well off cannot violate people's rights to individual liberty and this is very important right because i'll sometimes see people say well if you're really committed to benefiting the least well off and eliminating all morally uh arbitrary disadvantages uh why not take somebody who's a gifted athlete for example uh and make them obese right wouldn't that equalize things uh and my response to that is always no you know that would be a violation of their fundamental liberty uh that would be deeply distasteful for me and also uh not allowing people to develop their talents uh would be a serious blow uh to trying to achieve the context where people can pursue their vision of the good life uh but what i would say in these circumstances then is look if somebody is not particularly gifted at sports uh and it becomes apparent that no amount of resources allocated to them will make them gifted at sports then there are ways that we can compensate them for any disadvantages that might accrue to them as a result of that uh, and that's what any good educational program should do right uh if you're a school district and you're just allocating all your money to your athletics program uh, and so anybody who's not gifted athletics isn't able to benefit from that that's a serious problem and i think any parent would agree with me there right uh so maybe try to allocate some money to your debate team uh or the history club or amnesty international right i was part of amnesty international in my high school so i have a fondness for that so that people who have aptitudes in that arena will also be able to pursue those interests and develop those natural capacities uh now i don't think that there's any theoretical uh approach to this uh that's kind of one size fit all i think it's really going to depend on the context it's going to depend on the students it's going to depend on the culture uh as well and you know what might be appropriate in india probably wouldn't be appropriate in canada uh but you know i don't think that the theory Uh, is unworkable just because it has to be fine grained when applied in these specific instances fair enough now another criticism of affirmative action is based on what what do you guys call it the mismatch hypothesis or the mismatch theory what exactly is the technical term that they use for it i i keep getting confused in that like they even justice kalia uh, had uh, uh, you know spoken about it 
uh, where does kind of affirmative action create mismatches between students and universities that it stems from that idea so 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 what do you make of that entire debate in the western world where even thomas soul has spoken about the mismatch hypothesis and oh, yes. how tom to, to, thomas soul has uh, in detail shown that how affirmative action actually does not solve the problem but uh, it actually exacerbates it so what do you make of that maybe first you could tell everybody about what is the the point of view of the other side and then you can give your rebuttal to it sure well this is an argument that's been advanced uh, by conservatives for quite some time particularly people like soul uh, and the argument is essentially that by giving undeserving students uh, or at least unprepared students uh, a leg up for, in terms of entry uh, into these elite institutions, they're mismatched uh, to the caliber of institutions that they ultimately enter. So you, let's say you have, you know, a B plus student, right? Uh, pretty smart in his school. Uh, and for because of affirmative action, he winds up at Harvard uh, or Yale uh, with a bunch of students who have all been A plus students for a very long time. Uh, he's going to struggle, right? Uh, and the argument of these conservative authors is not only will the students struggle and be unprepared uh, for the kind of challenges that they'll face at an elite institution, it's also the case that they'll feel that the only reason that they are there uh, is because they've had some kind of unfair advantage given to them that they don't actually deserve to be there. And moreover, that their peers in that environment uh, will also recognize that that student wouldn't be there if they except for being granted uh, these kinds of unfair advantages, uh, and that's going to erode their self-esteem. Uh, and I should add that this isn't just a purely theoretical issue for somebody like, say, Ter Clarence Thomas. Uh, he himself has spoken uh, about how the feeling that he was given uh, undue advantage, uh, the sense that he was given undue advantage uh, when he entered into you know, the higher levels of the judiciary uh, really stuck with him. Uh, and it, I mean, anybody who's read any of Clarence Thomas' stuff will know, uh, it's not... Uh, that bitterness hasn't gone away, right? Uh, it's endured over time. Uh, now, I think that the response to this uh, is twofold, right? Uh, one is to point out that, again, uh, what we're doing in these kind of circumstances is still placing way too much weight uh, on this idea that there could ever be a student that deserves to be anywhere uh, from some metaphysical or cosmic sense. Uh, and in fact, here's where I would actually push back on Sowell and say, this idea that you could ever have a society where people deserve to be where they are is really the most spectacular form uh, or commitment to cosmic justice uh, that I could possibly imagine, right? Uh, the world is full of morally arbitrary advantage and disadvantage. It's never going to be ameliorated uh, completely. So this idea that you could have meritocratic institutions of the sort that he puts so much stock in uh, is deeply problematic. Uh, but I would say that, look, any kind of well-tailored affirmative action student or sort of program uh, was never committed to this idea that people who were not prepared to enter into an institution would nonetheless enter into it, right? The idea was that you would compare students, uh, and in the event that you had students of comparable ability and you had one spot open, uh, you would take race into account uh, as the kind of deciding factor to say, let's let this student in rather than that student. And I think that that's a very useful thing to do. Uh, I think it's a useful thing to do both to uh, ameliorate uh, racial tensions in the United States, uh, and also to try to get more persons of color into professions where historically uh, they've been, you know, largely absent. Uh, and there, are some of the ex best examples of this would be in California, uh, where after race was taken into account uh, through these various affirmative action programs at a variety of different California universities, uh, you saw an increase in the number of people of color entering into the legal profession, the medical profession. Uh, and I saw that, see that as largely a beneficent thing, since many of those people would then go back, work in their communities, which have been underserved by the legal profession and by the medical profession. Uh, and I think that we can all agree uh, that having more lawyers and more doctors in communities that genetically have not had access to those kind of resources can only be a good thing. So now in a scenario like this, look, the debate in America where I, I actually do lend a sympathetic view to the opposing side on this. Look, my views on this have always been clear. I uh, it, I am pro-SC, scheduled caste, scheduled tribe reservations in India because there I believe there is a genuine inherited disadvantage for those castes and those communities. Mm -hmm. I have been very consistent in opposing other backward classes or other backward castes getting reservations because A, that was never debated. B, it was purely political for votes. And C, uh, there is no result on the ground. There is no research on the ground that actually shows benefits. In the case of SCST reservations, there is ample data in India. There is ample research done in India that it has actually changed the life and transformed the lives of all these people. Now, in the case of America, is here 
here's a here's a unique problem for Asian community students that includes people from my community because mm-hmm. little do people remember India is also part of the Asian continent. People forget that. You know, in <laughs> yeah. America, it's very weird. They say Indians and then the Asians are always the Chinese, Japanese, Korean people. It's very yeah. or weird. Middle Eastern, right? You know, Middle, yeah. the Middle oh, yeah. East is also not part as of if, Asia. Yeah, as if India is not part of Asia, but. Look, here, here the problem is that the elite universities are pitting minorities against minorities. Oh, yeah. And then the, the, the Asian community gets rejected on flimsy grounds like personality. Now, that is equally racist, right? So how can a university make outrageous statements like that then? Yeah, and I think that that's all terrible, right? Uh, and I think this is where we need to have a more fine-grained uh, approach to the history of race relations in the United States uh, and a realization of the fact that the impact of racism uh, is complicated uh, and multifaceted, right? So, for instance, uh, let's take um, the Asian American example uh, that you brought up, right? So one of the things that people don't know is that Asian Americans uh, were actually the first group that was overtly discriminated against uh, under U.S. immigration law, right, uh, through various Chinese exclusion acts enacted throughout the 19th century. Uh, and associated with this was the widespread uh, popular portrayal uh, of East Asians in particular. I'll be more technical here. Uh, people from China, Japan, Korea, uh, as addicted to opium, uh, kind of ironic since the British were brid- delivering that opium to them. But, you know, that's a whole other matter uh, as being uh, shiftless, uh, conniving, uh, you know, uh, a threat to white women. Uh, and, you know, you don't need to take my word for it. All you need to do is go see uh, Disney movies like uh, The Aristocats. Have you ever seen that movie? The Aristocats? Yes. So you might remember that the Siamese cats uh, in that movie are portrayed as shiftless, conniving, uh, decadent, mm-hmm. you know, dangerous, right? Again, very, very in keeping uh, with this portrayal. Uh, but something shifted uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and there's been a lot of very interesting recent scholarship done on this. Uh, when East Asians instead started to be presented as what's sometimes called the model minority, right? Uh, the group that was largely assimilating into white culture, uh, that was conforming to the expectations of the broader society, uh, and that were being able and were being able to compete uh, with whites. Uh, and you know, when it came for jobs, academic opportunities, you name it. Uh, now, this was always intentionally exaggerated. Uh, in part to pit racialized groups against one another, uh, and also to try to offset accusations of racism uh, directed against the American state. Because they would say, well, listen, you know, if you came from Japan or Korea or your family came from Japan or Korea, uh, you've been able to be successful here. So why can't, you know, all the other communities do the same, right? Uh, But, you know, it also did serious harm uh, to many members of the East Asian community uh, that were and continue to be racialized uh, in many senses or who don't conform uh, to this myth of the model minority. Right. Uh, The person who, you know, goes to MIT to become an engineer uh, or whatever. Uh, And so this is an example of where we need to have a more fine-grained look at the history of race relations in the United States uh, and recognize that it's not just a simple matter of white supremacists saying everyone is below us uh, and everyone, you know, operates at the same kind of level if they're not white. Uh, There's a lot more stages to the ladder uh, that we need to be reflective on uh, and we need to recognize how it is that this has played a role in these debates around things like affirmative action and entry into elite schools. So, but then what is the way out of this? How does one draw a balance between, um, let's say, um, what the Asian students want? Let's say if the university creates criteria, right? The university has criteria, you need this score in math, this score in science, this score, this should be a SAT score, this should be a written paper score, this should be your interview score. And then the students, all of them just happen to be from one community. Mm-hmm. Why is that so problematic? Well, I think it's problematic because um, we should be making sure that the people who don't get into elite institutions are unable to pursue those opportunities are also afforded the chance to live a decent life, right? And again, I want to stress, I'm not opposed to people pursuing rarefied forms uh, of academic enterprises, right? You know, I teach students at the University of Michigan, and I want to say that I'm very proud of the fact that many of my students from many different backgrounds uh, are going on to do things that I'm continuously impressed by, right? Uh Jesus Christ, you know, some of the times uh, I get emails from my students being like, hey, what should I read over the summer? And I think back to when I was 20. I'm like, I think over the summer you should be cracking a beer and hanging out at the beach. You know, you shouldn't be emailing me and stuff. You know, take take a break, that kind of thing, right? Um, but I think that, and this leads me to my second critique of meritocracy, actually. In the United States and other contexts, uh, what we've really seen spread uh, is this kind of 
neoliberal ethic uh, that the people at the top deserve to be there and the people at the bottom must also deserve to be where they are. Uh, and consequently, since there's a kind of moral dimension to this, uh, that the state and society doesn't really need to do very many things for the people at the bottom, because uh, if they wind up where they are, then they must have done something to deserve it or they just couldn't cut it. I think that's a really toxic outlook to take. Uh, it's disruptive of community. It's predicated on all these kind of mythological uh, conceits about what people deserve. And I think establishing a society where if people aren't able to pursue the most rarefied kinds of activities, uh, they will know that they will be able to lead a decent life, be safe and well kept by uh, a robust welfare state. Uh, that will take a lot of the edge off uh, of these kinds of antagonisms. Because uh, right now, this kind of kill or be killed attitude uh, that we see in many parts uh, of the West, obviously, it's going to lead to an awful lot of tensions because if you're part of the group that doesn't wind up uh, in the kill group, but instead in the be killed group, uh, then naturally, you're going to say that there needs to be very serious change uh, and you're going to be extremely antagonistic about it. But then, see, the... The proof of the pudding is in the eating that no matter how sympathetic one would be, do you think at the end of the day, this is a supply side problem or a demand side problem? So it, it is just a dis. Uh, do you think in your view that the reason this becomes an issue is because the supply demand is off the chart? Is that the reason? Uh, I'm not sure I get your question. You mean with regard to post-secondary schools or more generally? in elite schools because at the end of the oh. day the problem is only with elite schools right not with right. over overall schools in general it's not like they uh the people uh the supreme court cracked down on anything else right oh okay so yeah that okay so that's a broader question then uh about how i think we should be reformatting post-secondary education uh in the united states uh because i think that the answer doesn't actually lie uh in these broad questions about affirmative action uh, but instead, and the way that education is stratified, uh, post-secondary education in particular in the United States, which leads to this really competitive ethic uh, and the sense that if you don't wind up at the, one of the very best schools, uh, then you're just going to get a degree from community college or some state school, and you're going to have to struggle for the rest of your life. But if you do get into one of these elite schools, then you basically got a golden ticket to whatever it is that you want, right? Again, part and parcel of that kind of toxic uh, culture that I was talking about. Uh, and I think that we can compare this approach to post-secondary education uh, to a country like, say, Canada uh, or the United Kingdom, uh, where there still is educational stratification, right? There are better schools and worse schools in the United Kingdom, and there are better schools uh, and worse uh, schools in the USA. Um, but it's far more, post-secondary education is far more accessible, and quality post-secondary education for all is far more accessible uh, in those other countries than it is in the United States. Uh, because if you're a reasonably good student, with pretty good grades, you can go to the University of Toronto, or you can go to McGill, uh, or you can go, you know, in you know, <laughs> the United Kingdom uh, to one of the major schools in London, you know, King College, Berkeley, or, or sorry, Berkeley, Birkbeck, or whatever it happens to be, uh, and the same level of access just isn't available uh, for people in the United States, uh, where in many of these cases, uh, these elite schools could actually take in more undergraduate students, but they pride themselves on having a high rejection rate, precisely to create this artificial sense that there's a the great deal of demand for these schools uh, and very little opportunity to actually supply that demand. Uh, it's a really warped system and it needs to change from the bottom up. Got it. Got it. So now maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the current state of affairs that I don't understand this. Why is this discussion so toxic in America? <laughs> I might not know, but I mean, you and I have talked about this before. It's one of those things where, yeah, like Americans just really get heated about this. Uh, I think it's really toxic for a number of different reasons, right? I'll just give two of them. Uh, one, uh, this idea of America as a free and equal meritocracy, uh, where what Jefferson called the natural aristocracy will rise to its own abilities is really central uh, to the kind of founding mystique of the state. Uh, mm. Now, Chris Rufo wrote uh, a book recently about cultural Marxism uh, or the cultural revolution that's taking place in the United States. And one of his large scale attacks on critical race theory, affirmative action, all of it, is that it undermines this mythology and the instincts of the average American is that there's something wrong with that, right? Uh, there's something wrong with this mythology or this mystique being undermined. Uh, but I would push back on that and say, listen, 
Uh, you might think it's unfortunate uh, that this mystique or mythology of America is a land where free and equal people compete with one another, they rise according to their aptitudes, so they fall according to their aptitudes, and a natural aristocracy emerges. Uh, you might think it's beatific, but the question isn't whether it's beatific, it's whether it's true or not. Right. Uh, and again, I think that when we look at the hard, fast empirical data, the reality is, like a lot of mythologies, it's just that a mythology. Right. Uh, and it's time to grow up and realize that you can live without your pleasing illusions uh, and face the world as it is. So I think but I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. Right. So I think that's one of the reasons uh, this is so animating uh, a kind of tension uh, in American culture. I think the other reason is that it really, really presses in. Uh, on the other sore spot uh, within the United States, uh, which is how to deal with these issues uh, of race and racialization, right? Uh, and there, I sometimes am tempted by Afro-pessimism and just saying, I'm not sure there's ever going to be uh, a firm resolution uh, on how to actually reconcile uh, with this legacy. Uh, certainly, you know, I've had thoughts on this. I'm sure you have thoughts on it too, but it's just such a complicated, emotional, uh, long-standing uh, set of problems uh it's just impossible to almost think your way through uh to a solution that'll satisfy everybody right uh, and i think that you see this in the kind of debates uh over how best to deal with this uh so for instance let's contrast two people uh antonin scalia uh, and kimberly crenshaw right mm -hmm. uh antonin scalia um famously put forward this idea that listen uh when it comes to access to elite schools uh the best way to actually eliminate racism it's just not to take race into account right uh the supreme mm -hmm. court once case or would put it uh in a famous case you know the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race uh and that includes when it comes to affirmative action right and so you have this colorblind uh approach that you take everyone just competes and race isn't even taken into account uh and that's one way of dealing with the legacy of racism right but then people like crenshaw will come up and say well listen uh if it's the case that millions of people uh, start off, this is her metaphor, right, again, uh, well behind the starting line. Uh, as we know, many people of color in the United States do because of those long histories of racialization. Then colorblindness is just going to replicate the same systems of inequality as before, except now it's going to be obscured so we can hypocritically say uh, we no longer discriminate on the basis of race, even if mm -hmm. we effectively do just continue to discriminate on the basis of race. Since, of course, if white students have way more money and resources allocated to them, uh, they're going to win the race every single time. Right. Uh, so her argument is that we need to commit ourselves to fair quality of opportunity by bringing everyone to the same starting line. And that's another conception of how to deal with this problem. Uh, but then, you know, the Scalia's of the world will fire back and say, well, but then, yeah, you're allocating all kinds of fund of state resources, taxes, et cetera, to give these students a leg up uh, that maybe poor whites won't be able to get. So now you're just discriminating on the basis of race again. Uh, and it all gets so very complicated that. Again, I sometimes I'm just tempted to say that what we need to do uh, is think about these uh, in more utilitarian terms uh, and try to take the uh, affective basis and the historical basis out of it. Uh, that's impossible, but sometimes I'm just, I have to admit that I'm tempted to do so. What, what do you tell those people who give this specific argument? They would say, well, why do you need to have race-based policies? Why can't you just have policies based on economic status? So it doesn't matter if it's a poor white person, if a poor Chinese person, a poor African-American person. Everybody just gets those benefits and they move forward. What is so unique about um, the African-American or the Native American experience that they need to be considered over and above, uh, let's say, any other person? Well, that's actually an interesting question, uh, and that relates back to my uh, utilitarian argument, right? So uh, Samuel Moyn posted an article not too long ago, uh, which talked about how it is that one of the problems with affirmative action programs is that even if they were beneficent uh, in the sense of establishing um, higher numbers of people of color in post-secondary education, uh, what became pretty clear early on is that the kind of students of color that benefited from this usually came from upper middle class families. Right, big surprise. Uh, so that even if, say, Harvard or Yale uh, had more rainbow-colored cohort of students, they all came from more or less the same class background. Right, got They're it. Pretty well off. Uh, and so the, our point of the article is actually maybe uh, if instead of foregrounding race, we foregrounded class, we'd actually wind up with more students of color at Harvard. Also, since class tends to map race in the United States, but it would also ensure that poor whites uh, who are historically disadvantaged would be able to 
maybe enter into some of these elite institutions in a way they haven't before. Now, again, I'm not sure that's the solution because this was just a kind of template article saying maybe we should look at this and we don't have any firm data uh, on what such a program would look like. Uh, but since I'm sympathetic to the argument that we need to be sensitive to the disadvantages that accrue because of class-based discrimination, as well as the arguments that we should be sensitive to uh, disadvantages that accrue from race-based discrimination, it's certainly worth taking a look uh, at whether this could allow us uh, to resolve both of those disadvantages uh, by foregrounding class uh, more centrally. Got it. Now, there is another argument that is uh, given uh, in this um, in this subject uh when it comes to this entire debate in the united states of america in general is on how how do we allocate the efficiency problem i like to call it the efficiency of the policy itself because uh the more society becomes ben benevolent and uh open-minded what's going to happen now you're going to end up marrying, let's say, an African-American. Uh, mm -hmm. An African-American might marry someone who's Chinese or Indian, or and you might marry an Indian, vice versa. It's going to be a mixed-race society. Then these policies become harder and harder to apply. Uh, because let's say, uh, the, if we are looking at Kimberly Crenshaw's in, intersectionality as a working framework, mm -hmm. uh, how do we work out? Is a mixed-race child less oppressed than a, a child from uh, black and black parents then how do we solve the problem of nigerian americans that are one of the richest minorities and the most successful minorities in america what if you are just africa you're not african-american you're just african you are african who is american there is african-american american and then there is african who is american that's what i'm trying to say how does one like how does the law distinguish between these people is what i'm trying to say yeah, it's absolutely, it's a fantastic question, right? And I don't think, again, there's a simple answer to it. Uh, but this is where I think we can actually be critical uh, of some of the more vulgar uh, exponents of identity politics, precisely because they only look at identity uh, rather than the circumstances surrounding it, right? Uh, I think what we really need to be attentive to uh, are the material conditions uh, under which people are brought up and the extent to which they either provide them with advantages or disadvantages. Uh, now, it's very hard for the law to take into account uh, those various material conditions and the forms of power uh, that instantiate them, uh, but certainly not impossible, right? Uh, and Crenshaw, at her best, to be clear, if you actually read her article, uh, is very good at analyzing the different ways that people can be advantaged by operating within, you know, this different group uh, that has these kinds of class advantages, but these kinds of racialized disadvantages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's early days yet in terms of the social science on this, uh, but we're getting better at it all the time. Uh, and I think that as we gather more empirical data uh, about the different ways uh, people are materially advantaged or disadvantaged and the way that maps on to various different identity groupings, intersecting identity groupings, uh, will become more and more effective uh, at hopefully fine-tuning policies that can address uh, these various forms of discrimination or disadvantage. Yeah. Now I want to talk about maybe we can wrap up uh, if we spend a 10-minute segment on reparations. What is your mm -hmm. view on reparations now? I, I have to say, I don't actually have an advanced view uh, on this, right? Uh, I tend to be sympathetic to the libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick, uh, who some of your listeners might be sympathetic, or sorry, might be aware of. Uh, have you read uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia? Yes, I have. Okay, fantastic book, right? Uh, and one of the interesting things that Nozick makes is actually that there's a very good libertarian argument uh, for reparations uh, in the United States. Uh, so in a famous footnote that goes on for actually several pages, uh, I'm never sure why this wasn't just incorporated in the book itself because it's a very long footnote. Uh, he says, look, uh, libertarian justice holds that to be deprived of one's property or freedom uh, without compensation uh, is a very great wrong, right? Uh, it's an injustice. Uh, and even if it happened a long time ago, people are still entitled to reparations uh, for this injustice. Uh, and he goes on to argue then that any consistent libertarian has to take, libertarianism has to take this problem very seriously. Uh, and he says, it might be too much to ask for socialism for our sins. Uh, so that's off the table, but maybe a couple hundred years uh, of reparations paid to this group uh, to ameliorate the disadvantage they and their ancestors accrued, that would be sufficient, right? Uh, now, he doesn't give a firm deadline, um, but I think that, that something like that uh, is probably the case uh, in these circumstances. Uh, and I would argue that we know that we've done enough uh, when there's a rough parity in terms of the amount of property 
uh, that would be owned by uh, owned by people within different historically racialized groups. Uh, and that's very much not the case right now, because uh, we can take a look at social scientific data that shows there's vast disparities uh, in the property that's owned by, say, the white community versus, say, uh, the African-American community. Uh, so, you know, there's a very famous libertarian uh, philosopher uh, who's certainly not sympathetic to socialism at all, making, I think, a pretty compelling case for reparations on the basis of libertarian property rights and libertarian justice. Uh, and I would hope uh, that many people who are supportive uh, of markets and private property will look at that argument and take it more seriously, uh, because there are a lot of good libertarian philosophers like Matt Solinsky that say that this is a serious problem that we need to, as a community, a libertarian community, uh, address more sympathetically than we have in the past, because just reifying existing private property relations and saying, uh, let losses fall where they lie historically and let's move forward, uh, that's just not going to cut it if you actually believe uh, in the principles of liberty, property, uh, and markets. Yeah, but uh, my view on reparations again uh, falls on the same problem. Uh, I see a lot of times I have a little bit of experience in policy and working with politicians and implementation of policies. I have, you know, I, I, I'm a lucky guy. I always say I, I by sheer luck of my life, I ended up meeting a member of parliament and that member of parliament gave me the opportunity to work in rural India, work on government schemes, which is why my, you know, my perspective changed after that. I saw the power of the state. And that state can sometimes, uh, although I'm still a very libertarian person at heart, but I still <laughs> yeah. see the good side of the state. I, I could personally see it. But I know reparations are very hard to execute. Oh, yeah. And and the problem, again, will be how do they go about doing it? Again, <laughs> for reparations to happen, the first moral issue that people don't realize, and this is going to be such a heated debate, is that you're putting a price on our misery? Yes, we are. Absolutely. And uh, to be clear, I don't know that there's any easy way to deal with this. Because, uh, look, uh, it's very clear that reparations aren't going to completely absolve uh, all the problems that have resulted from hundreds of years of discrimination any more than paying somebody $25 million because you put them in prison for 30 years and it turned out they're innocent is going to give them those 30 years their life back, right? Uh, it's just an acknowledgement that wrong was done, an attempt to make things right, uh, and also uh, an effort to try to put pressure on states uh, and on communities uh, not to commit the same kind of travesties again uh, because it's an acknowledgement that there's a price to be paid for that, right? Uh, so look, in terms of how it is that we could go about allocating or paying reparations, uh, there I really don't have any sophisticated answer for you. Uh, and also part, again, because like you, I think it's extremely contextual. Uh, let's go to Canada uh, as an example, right? Some example that I'm more familiar with. Uh, so the federal government uh, has committed itself uh, to offering the victims of the residential school system billions of dollars uh, as reparations for their pain and suffering, including the families of students who went through, uh, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> to uh, residential schools. Now, I think this is a very good thing, right? Because it's very clear, uh, as anybody who's looked at the history of residential schools in Canada, uh, that many of these students endured extraordinary hardship uh, to say nothing of their parents, uh, who also had their children ripped away from them, uh, had their culture domain defamed or whatever. Uh, but even within these communities, there's no agreement about how it is that this money should be paid out. Uh, and this is why, again, I think there's no simple answer to this. Uh, some of the indigenous communities say, what well, we should be get as a payment to the community as a community, right? Give it to the tribe. Uh, and then the tribe will allocate this to public resources, uh, to building schools, to repairing infrastructure, uh, and that will provide long-term benefits uh, to the, the individuals within our community. Others are very different. They say, no, this happened to parents and individuals, uh, not to the community as some kind of abstraction. Uh, so what we want is a check paid out to you know, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, and they can decide uh, how to spend it. And then that leads to further problems about what happens if you know uh, they don't spend it on you know things that seem appropriate or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, I think that the closest I would come to giving a definitive statement on this uh, is that it is for the victimized community uh, to ascertain what form they think reparations should take. Uh, but that needs to be done in dialogue with the group that will be paying out the money. Uh, and I think that that's going to itself involve very complicated technical uh, kinds of questions. Uh, that there's really no good theoretical response to, at least on my part. Yeah, and this is where the problem stems from because uh, people don't understand that these are not minor leakages that happen in every every government uh, 
you know scheme or or policy these could be major leakages when it comes to reparations which is why um one has to be very careful about when they design a policy about the second and third order effects that while okay. the policy might sound noble which is why i'm very skeptical about reparations as an idea and i always felt that you know in india the quota system works because you know you identify now in the quota you could actually have you know debates like colman refused to believe when i told him that there is a caste in india that is voluntarily opted out of uh, reservations he's like that doesn't happen i'm like listen it has happened i forgot the name of the caste at that time uh during the podcast but uh, then i subsequently as i told him i'll email you the name and i did email him and you know there are uh, other circles inside the dalit community in india where uh, they have these uh, ideas like no more four so after the third generation if three generation of dalits have uh, received reservations i think voluntarily the fourth generation if they are well to do they should not seek reservations and mm-hmm. stuff like that so are the other more needy kids they get the benefits of that system now there are a lot of debates and and also this cannot be a system which is ad infinitum you have to have a the oh, yeah. idea that this needs to end at the end of the day if so, if we are saying that this never ends that means we are just saying that we have to give up on the idea of being decent human beings that we cannot win this which which is something i refuse to believe but uh with reparations i see the systemic problems in education to be way more than affirmative action this is just my view i could be wrong no i absolutely empathize with that uh, and actually i would make the case that the argument you just put forward is a very good one uh when it comes to why it is that we need to take race considerably more seriously than we have for a long time uh cuz it's very telling that the same people who are arguing or the same types of people who are arguing for segregation in the 1950s and the 1960s uh almost immediately by the time the 1980s came along said we've done enough uh for the african american community uh in our state uh it's time to put a stop to this right uh, very telling uh, indeed uh because what has consistently happened throughout american history uh is the country well make a few small advantages uh in terms of ameliorating the impact of racial discrimination uh, and then back away from doing anything too profound uh and then the result of that is that future generations are saddled with the burden of having to deal with problems that really should have been dealt with centuries ago right uh so you know let me just give you you know two examples of this uh you know in our ideal circumstances a country that was committed to this idea uh that all people are born uh free and equal uh would never have had a slave system to begin with uh and it would have been constitutionally eliminated uh in 1789 now i'm aware of the fact that this would pose extremely severe difficulties in terms of obtaining unity uh but what i'll always push back on is to say well unity wasn't really obtained right within about 70 80 years of the america uh, united states being founded there was a massive civil war because this problem wasn't dealt with uh so postponing it from 1789 uh didn't really have the effect uh that it was intended to have since you know papering over these problems just intended to exacerbate them uh then you get to 1865 right there's a major suite of legislation uh, including constitutional change that's intended to end uh racial discrimination including the introduction of course of the 14th amendment uh and reconstruction in the American South that's intended to eliminate the slave system but then by 1870s uh the 1870s excuse me there's this decision made that well the north has done enough for african americans uh it's time to withdraw soldiers uh from the south uh and almost immediately what happens uh is segregation is introduced uh all kinds of restrictions on african american participation in democratic systems are introduced uh de facto slavery uh is introduced again on the sharecropping systems uh, and though the problem goes on for another 100 years then you get to the 1860s and 50s sorry 18 sorry 1950s and 60s uh there's another suite of legislation uh some major court victories with the Warren court and the liberal court advancing racial equality in things like schools uh but then by the time 19 uh, 1968 comes along with the Nixon election uh that's put a stop to uh, and things start rolling back again and now we're in 2023 uh and there's another suite of discussions about how to deal with race and the same kind of people who say we've done enough uh, at this point it's time to move past this are saying that we should put a stop to it now i want to just say listen let's fucking end this you know what i mean if we need to finish if race and racism is going to be a perennial problem uh let's bite the bullet take major efforts to eliminate racial inequality right now and move on uh because if we fail to do that then all we're going to see is this enduring pattern persist uh where 
every couple of decades, there has to be a big, gigantic set of controversies around this because we didn't do enough in the first place to actually solve this problem, right? Solve it and let's move on, but let's solve it comprehensively. Yeah, I don't know if if there ever will be a solution to this. I think the American society, if you look at the polls and everything, an overwhelming percentage of the population, and it just can't be all Republicans. It has to be the Democrats too. They they are vehemently opposed to the idea of affirmative action. I find it very interesting because, you know what 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 was the most weird thing, and we maybe we can end on this is when I shared my views with Coleman and many other people. Razif was not surprised. He understands Indian politics. He's Bangladeshi, but he gets Indian politics. So he's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, Indians are okay with the idea of quotas. They just see it around them. But Coleman Hughes got the shock of his life. He's like, what? This Indian guy is okay with the idea. And here I am, the African-American, saying, no, the Supreme Court is right and they don't work. And this is the law. This is the argument. And I, I found it very interesting. But yeah, it is what it is, man. I don't know how America is going to solve this problem. I, I have always maintained this. My support for scheduled caste, scheduled tribe reservations in India has always been consistent. And I think if I apply the principles, then Native Americans and African-Americans do deserve, deserve a special push in, in this society. Now, the, the thing is that in this society, because they are far richer than India, then maybe they could work around through different ways. Maybe not the Indian way. In India, the quotas were a must, A, because the SCSTs were like almost 30% of the population. You just can't say, go to hell to that huge number. <laughs> yeah. two, two, it was also because we are a poorer society. So the market economics and the the effect of the market doesn't take place at that level so i guess uh, america would have to come up with their own solution i don't know but hey man uh, i'll leave you with the last words before we wrap up no problem uh well i think i'll just end with what i said before right uh i think that whatever your thoughts on whether we should have a meritocracy uh or whether it'd be nice to have a meritocracy uh, i will always insist to you that just like every other utopia there never will be a meritocracy right it's time to relegate that idea to the dustbin of history. Uh, what we can have is a society where people are treated fairly uh, and where they have the opportunity to lead you know, reasonably decent lives, uh, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and I want that for all Americans, all Indians, all Canadians, everyone everywhere, uh, except for you know uh, some of those dash of the alt-right peoples. They can go to hell. Uh, but all of that said, uh, I kid, right? Uh, I think that the way to achieve a society uh, where people are given a fair and decent opportunity at a good life in the United States uh, isn't to pass the buck on to future generations to deal with the race issue the way that so many Americans have before uh, and just say, somebody else can do it, right? Uh, let's just be done with this, take it seriously, make real strides to achieve equality, uh, do that for as long as it takes, and then we can really move on from this issue uh, and hopefully focus on something else entirely. Because uh, I can guarantee you, as tired of Repub as Republicans are uh, having to talk about racism, uh, that there are millions uh, of Americans uh, who would be very happy to see the back of racism and to really see the back of racism. Uh, and I'm sure they'd be way more happy to see the back of racism than Republicans would be to stop talking about it. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love reading your articles. I love reading That's your good. books. and uh, And I wish you nothing but success and happiness. You too, Kushma. Thanks a lot. All right, guys, we'll end today's podcast. So in the description, you will you will see Matt's Twitter handle. And I'll also leave a link. You can go and buy Matt's books and go and uh, I, I'm sure Matt must be on Muckrack or something. I'll, I'll put a link to his Muckrack and where you can go and read all of Matt's articles because he writes for the Jacobin and many other portals. He writes for multiple portals. So it's better to give you a link where you can go read all of his work. You can, you don't need to agree with Matt on everything, but I can assure you one thing, he'll push you. He'll push you in scholarly ways, which is why I love reading him. I always read him. I don't miss anything he writes. And and in fact, uh, people don't realize that uh, for most of the Indians, I think Matt was discovered by this right-wing guy and, and he started uh, introducing Matt to Indians. Most of the left-wing Indians did not know about Matt, but the left-wing Indians then follow me and they're like, okay, who's this guy? We should follow him and use his arguments against the right wingers in India. That's 100 percent true. Actually, I get a lot of emails from your listeners, uh, you know, from Delhi and Mumbai and Bombay, or sorry, um, you know, uh, Kashmir. And now there's like, hey, you know, I heard you about on uh, the podcast. So that's been really a pleasant experience. 
Yeah. So, so it's, it, it, it's interesting. And the whole idea is that, listen, guys, this podcast was started by me, not because I wanted to be a, a millionaire or a multimillionaire. I, I wanted to genuinely have exchange of ideas. And, and Matt is one of those people who I discovered through the process. So go follow him, follow his work. I guarantee you, you will learn a lot. And if you like what I'm doing over here, please support this podcast. This podcast avoids ad reads for a reason because my heterodoxy is strengthened through my membership program. So please join the membership program. It doesn't matter whether you are on YouTube or Patreon or Fanmo for Indians. You can go join there. If you can't do that, the least you can do is subscribe to the channel, like the video and leave a comment in the comment section. Audio listeners, do your thing by leaving a rating. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye. Take care.